Why do you think your uh, mother and father ultimately left Cincinnati for Chicago? Oh, because there was nothing happening down there. And the people who he gave to would, would walk across the street when they saw him coming and not go out so they wouldn't see him. This is episode five and the final episode of this season of Total Fighter, a limited series about Ezra Charles. My name is Ricky Mulvey. This show will focus on Ezard after he took the heavyweight title from Joe Lewis, from fighting in Yankee Stadium to a high school gymnasium in Lincoln Heights, Ohio, from giving $30 tips to struggling to make rent in Chicago. But the goal of this show is to show you why Ezard's end is really worth admiring. Charles is confident, but provides few thrills. As a result, he lacks crowd appeal, a fact that has made Ezard perhaps the most underrated champion of all time. Frank Sinatra took an 18-year-old actress, Joan Blackman, to a movie premiere. A newspaper writer asked Sinatra the name of his date. Sinatra answered, Ezard Charles. And the next morning, the Los Angeles Mirror News captioned a photo of her. Ezard was an eyeful in a shocking pink gown, shoes, coat, and lipstick. It's because Ezard's name had become even more of an insult as the undisputed champ. Ezard had a different style than Lewis, who was known for his one-punch knockout power. Ez was long and lean, shy. He poisoned his opponent's will by peppering them with counter shots. Ezard was a cobra. Lewis was a B-52 bomber. Lewis was the face of America in propaganda films in World War II. Ezard drove a truck and cleaned latrines in North Africa. The sad reality is that he does not fire the public imagination, wrote Earl Lofquist of the Providence Journal. And his style was not that of Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis was a knockout guy. So it, it was two conflicting styles. Charles more methodical, playing the rounds. But, um, you know, at, at the time, that's what it came down to. That's Kevin Grace, an archivist at the University of Cincinnati and the author of Cincinnati Boxing. Newspaper writers claimed that Charles was a middling fighter in a heavyweight division with no real talent. Before his fight with Lewis, no writer said that Charles had a shot at winning, but afterward, those same writers said that Charles only won because he beat up a balding and aged Lewis. Here's William Detloff, author of Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. He came right out and said, I thought that when I was champ and after I beat Lewis, you guys would kind of appreciate me. Uh, but at some point he realized that it was never, was never going to be the case because he wasn't Joe Lewis and he wasn't the kind of fighter that Joe Lewis was. As attended his celebratory parades and he had a belt, but beating Joe Lewis, that was unforgivable. Jersey Joe Walcott lost a gift decision to Lewis and he later said, quote, I thought I won big, but out of respect and admiration for Lewis, I never felt bad about not getting the decision. I think anyone that dethroned him would be the most hated guy in the world. Charles' next defense came against Nick Barone in the Cincinnati Gardens. Barone, a heavy underdog, was a top 10 light heavyweight whose toughness compensated for his lack of technical skill. The fight was a special occasion for Cincinnati. The last heavyweight championship here was a John Sullivan fight in 1880 when prize fighting was illegal and these bouts happened in sort of 19th century fight clubs. John Sullivan's fight in Cincinnati took place without a ring. The crowd pushed the fighters when they got too close and only 30 people attended the secret event. But anyway, Ezard's Cincinnati promoters pushed for the Barone title defense to take place at the Cincinnati Gardens. They were finally willing to play ball with the gangsters at the International Boxing Club, the guys who really owned the heavyweight championship. 
And of course, those gangsters squeezed the Cincinnati promoters. Becker had agreed to pay the IBC 25% of his profit. And for the money, the IBC refused to allow Becker to televise the fight, and Charles lost his chance to fight a game contender in front of a national audience. But if Becker had permission to sell the television rights, he might have been able to make some money. But instead, the Cincinnati Gardens was a few fans short of a sellout. The snow and ice kept some of them at home, and without revenue from the television rights, those promoters cleared about $600 for promoting a heavyweight title. And that match in 1950 would be the last major heavyweight bout to take place in Cincinnati. Barone proved his toughness for 10 rounds. He was a Marine who knew how to slug, but wasn't as skilled as a boxer. His engine burned out in the 11th round when Ez knocked him out in front of the screaming crowd at Cincinnati Gardens. And after the fight, a reporter asked Charles to compare his challenger to his other opponents. Charles credited Barone's strength, but then added, Why ask me about that stuff? I'm no authority on boxing. But Ez was finally making great money, and the people around him knew. I think that Gladys enjoyed very much being the wife of the heavyweight champion, right? And enjoyed uh, wearing brand new clothes and lots of nice jewelry and fur coats. Again, that's William Detloff. Ezard regularly traveled with a large entourage. He was more than happy to pick up the tab, give out loans, and invest in friends' businesses. Sometimes he loved people where they took advantage of him too much. He gave too much of himself. But, I mean, how much, how could you say you gave too much of yourself? That's Ezard Charles' son, the minister, Ezard Charles. You also heard him at the beginning of the episode. As a child, I had 10 guys around with him all the time. I don't know where they came from or what, mm -hmm. but wherever he went, they were there, freeloading and all the time. That's Ray Arcel on The Dick Cavett Show. Arcel was one of Ezard's trainers. Ez was just too damn nice to suspect that the guys who asked him to borrow 30 bucks a day at the Cotton Club were junkies, not actually his friends. He tipped heavy because he knew the expectations of being the champ. In his next fight, Ez returned to Madison Square Garden. He easily dispatched his challenger, the brutish Lee Oma, on national television. MSG's boxing rights, of course, were owned by the International Boxing Club. Is it Charles, the world's heavyweight champion, looking fit, full of fight. Like the other challengers, Oma ran out of steam. Another wicked left and another left. Oma goes reeling and it looks as though referee Ruby Goldstein has stopped the fight he has. Oma staggers dazedly to his corner, apparently surprised by the suddenness of the finish. Lee argues with the ring official, but he's clearly taken far too many smashes on the chin to be able to continue. After that knockout, the crowd did not love him. Because the heavyweight division didn't have enough talented contenders, because Lee Oma hiked up his trunks and it looked like Ez hit him low. But the crowd booed Charles after the fight, primarily because he was not Joe Lewis. Ezard said after the fight, quote, I'll keep on winning and maybe the people will give me the full recognition as champion. Maybe I'll show them more next time. But still, being the heavyweight champion had its benefits. To say that he wasn't popular on a big scale is not the same as saying he wasn't still looked upon as a hometown boy who made good. Clearly, there were plenty of people in Cincinnati who revered Charles and looked up to him because he was a Cincinnati boy. That's William Detloff, author of Ezard Charles, A Boxing Life. Ezard Charles would be the first black man to hang out in Toots Shore's famous Midtown Manhattan bar. One of Ezard's trainers, Ray Arcel, knew Toots and had to clear it ahead of time. Arcel said, 
Would any black guy in off the street be served without a problem? I don't know. But Toots knew me and a heavyweight champion was a heavyweight champion. He generated no excitement at heavyweight. People didn't like that he couldn't knock people out at any moment like he wanted to, like Joe Lewis did. He had no personality to speak of, right? Not like Archie Moore did or even Lewis, who had a certain, again, a quiet, stoic charisma. One idea to drum up some excitement for a Charles fight was to throw Joe Lewis at him again, but money, managers, and injuries got in the way. Ez ripped through a couple of contenders in the meantime, and the IBC set Charles up with his old dancing partner, Jersey Joe, for another fight. It was Walcott's fifth crack at the crown and his third shot against Charles. Ez's manager, Jake Mintz, didn't want that fight. It's tough to beat a top-level fighter twice, much less three times. Mintz said, quote, he's the toughest of challengers, but Charles wants to fight him, so here we are. For Ez's entire career, he was the antithesis of a hand-picked opponent, so he had little interest in fighting soft challengers. This fight, though, marked Ezard's ninth title defense, and the 37-year-old Walcott was a 7-to-1 underdog. Newspaper writers gave Walcott the disparaging nickname Pappy. This time, Walcott played some mind games with Charles before the fight. He said the two decisions were gifts. This led Ezard to promise an early knockout. Maybe that promotional strategy worked because fans were hungry to watch that fight, and 28,000 turned out at Pittsburgh's Forbes Field to watch Ezard defend his title against the scrappy journeyman. Joe's early career was a string of hardship after hardship. For a year and a half, he was forced to accept nine and a half dollars in weekly relief checks in order to feed his wife and six children. In between comebacks, Walker held a number of construction jobs, drove an ice truck, mixed cement, labored for the WPA, Jersey Joe had a new confidence in a more straightforward style. Well, that packs most of his extra poundage in his huge arms and shoulders. Out of power there. He tapped his gloves together before initiating exchanges in the first round. Walcott laid on the pressure early and thick. So far, Ezard has failed to display the sharpness he demonstrated in his previous encounters with Joe. Winding Ez with body blows in the third and bloodied the champ's mouth with his jab. Charles' right eye is beginning to swell. Ezard started to slow. He wasn't winning in the clinch like he did in previous fights. Ezard about to dig back to the body at short range. But again, Walcott ties him up. Jersey Joe learned to time his counter strikes and get in under him. You'll see Charles try a right, but Walcott was backing away. Ezard Charles leaves his corner for round seven, destined to become It didn't look final. remarkable from the start. Charles came in swinging, Joe pushed him backward, and Walcott walked Ez down with his hands low, as if he were out for a casual stroll. Walcott senses his foe's failing strength. Ez threw a quick jab, but left his chin hanging for a moment too long. Now watch. Walcott's about to fire a left hook to the jaw. Walcott unleashed a left uppercut and landed on Ezard's chin with crushing force. The crowds had finally gotten what they wanted, the Cincinnati Cobra unconscious with his face against the canvas, and Ez tried to get up on the count of nine, but he lost his balance. Jersey Joe told the Fort Wayne Journal that his only thought was, quote, thank God, this is it. Ez hung his head in the dressing room afterward, getting through his booming headache. Gladys cried. Did they really count me out? Ez asked his manager, Jake Mintz. Yeah, he said. Ez didn't stop. He couldn't stop. With a couple of wins, he'd be right back in the title contention. He still had great cornermen, the loyal Jimmy Brown, and, and Ray Arcel was still hanging on for the extra cash. In addition to training, by the way, Arcel started promoting Saturday night fights on ABC. The International Boxing Club owned the television rights for the major boxing matches on CBS. 
with the club's gangsters, did not welcome the competition. On September 19, 1953, two hooded men ran behind Ray Arcel and beat him with a lead pipe. They fractured that trainer's cranium. Police questioned Arcel and he maintained that he had no enemies and his beating was a random act of violence. Saturday night fights went off the air and Arcel paid $13,000 for advertising in the IBC's magazine. Charles played ball with the IBC for another crack at the heavyweight crown, but like the vast majority of former heavyweight champions, has never made it to the top of that hill again. He fought Jersey Joe for a fourth time. He got another shot because the IBC respected him. The head Jim Norris appreciated that Ez fought often and never complained, but by their fourth match, Walcott had Ez's number and won a 15-round decision. Look, as Charles rushes in, Walcott hoists him off his feet. A tip-off that Joe has the advantage in weight. He's the bigger, tougher guy tonight. He lifted Charles with one arm. The stadium cheered. Newspaper writers called it a gift decision. It didn't matter. Ez fought with his customary caution, leading at the beginning and coasting at the end. And as an ex-champion, matchmakers tried to make Ez a gatekeeper fighter, feed him to younger contenders, knowing that a win would lead their prospect to a champion. Ez went to Ogden, Utah to face Rex Lane in an untelevised bout. When Ray Arcel arrived with his entourage, the hotel owner greeted him with a gun on his hip. He said he was not allowing blacks in his hotel in harsher language. So Arcel went to the hotel down the street and paid for the rooms in advance. He had to promise that his group, the former heavyweight champ, would eat meals in their room and not hang around during the day. Ray Arcel remembered the hardships that black fighters faced while traveling and described an encounter with a hotel manager on the Dick Cavett show. So I said, look, I got a double room He'll sleep in one bed, I'll sleep in the other. He says, when you order the food, put him in the bathroom. And I said, well, I can only order for one. He says, well, you can eat in a coffee shop. Ezra Charles II, the minister, Ezra Charles, says that his father didn't really talk about the discrimination he faced when he was a fighter. He didn't even say anything about that. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't even say anything, because he, he didn't keep that kind of stuff in his mind, see? He didn't think about those things, negative things like that. And that's something I had to learn to do, not let the negative thoughts. He would change his thoughts. And the scripture says that, think on these things, the good things. The former heavyweight champion, Jack Dempsey, refereed the fight between Rex Lane and Ezard. Dempsey ignored Rex Lane's blatant headbutts. Ez clearly outpointed the young contender, but Jack Dempsey was the star referee and the sole judge of the fight. He ended up giving two rounds to Lane, Ezard one round, and called seven of them even. This gave Lane the win by decision, and the International Boxing Club stood by the verdict. I called it as I saw it, Jack Dempsey later said. Charles wasn't fighting, Lane was. It was a close fight. That's why I called seven of the rounds even. This marked the beginning of Ez's pockmarked career as a former heavyweight champion. He fought once a month, sometimes against top quality opponents, sometimes against journeymen also looking for a paycheck. But he'd earn his last flash of greatness in a fight against Rocky Marciano, the undefeated heavyweight champion who had the full backing of the IBC. Marciano was the American dream, the first generation immigrant son of an Italian shoemaker from the province of Chiete. In the first fight, Ez gave the crowds what they finally wanted. Here's William Detloff, author of Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. What everybody was freaked out about and happy about was Ezra fought in a way that they all 
that they wanted him to fight all along. They wanted to see that as it all along, the gutty, active, aggressive guy that, that he wasn't a lot of the time. Desert Charles, a dead game fighter tonight, weathered the storm. By Marciano's own admission, Ez fought him harder than anyone else, and that was an Ezard who'd boxed in nearly 100 professional fights. That says about as much as Ezard is the quality of competition that Rocky primarily fought. Ezard took risks. The Cobra battled inside and slugged with a fighter who knocked out the vast majority of his competition. Charles in trouble from solid smashes to the head. Since he'd already been KO'd by Walcott, walked through Joe Lewis's jabs, Ez had little to lose and dominated the early rounds. He knew this may be his last crack at a title. The elder statesman opened a gash over Marciano's eye, a crescent cut two inches wide and an inch deep. In these superb close-ups, you can see the damage each has been handing out. Swollen faces, cut eyes. The flowing blood blinded Marciano at times and forced him to back off. But Marciano turned the fight into a brawl in round six. That's where Rocky was best. He tired Ez out and battered his face. In the eighth, Marciano hit Ez squarely in the Adam's apple, and Ez couldn't swallow. He could hardly breathe for two rounds. Charles visibly tiring, leaning on his man, hoping to chew up the clock. But for as tired as Ezard was, Rocky Marciano only put him on the ropes one time, and that was in the 15th round. The tension increases as Rocky steps up the attack, trying for a knockout. He battled mightily, but he couldn't grab back the title from the younger, fresher champion. Ez lost the decision, but Ez started fighting in the way that the crowds finally wanted. He earned a highly publicized rematch. Ez completed a full fight camp. The writer Bud Schulberg asked Ez what he was reading while he trained. Ez said, quote, I've put books aside. They distract me from what I'm doing. A prize fighter has to be crude and tough. Crude and tough. He seemed to savor the sound of it. Then, he showed his regular, white-as-a-toothpaste ad teeth and a revealing grin, Schulberg claims. Ez was finally embodying the type of fighter that the crowds wanted him to be, but this fight would prove to be a tipping point. And then, in their second fight, he just completely crumbled. That's William Detloff, author of Ezard Charles, A Boxing Life. Marciano was off for a while before their first fight, and there's some some possibility that he was just rusty. So he was just better for their second fight, but uh, Ezra wasn't even in the second fight to any appreciable degree. The sharp-punching Charles still connected hard shots and opened a cut on Marciano's nose. The lore is that the referee came to Marciano and said, one more round and we're going to stop in. Ezra Charles II maintains that the sight of a bleeding Rocky Marciano made his father flash back to his bout against Sam Baruti a fateful match in which Baruti died after the fight due to severe blows to the head. And Bert Sugar said it. He said Ezra would have won that fight if it hadn't been for Baruti and killing Baruti because he split Rocky's nose. He couldn't hit him anymore. Detloff doesn't believe that Ez was close to a KO, though. But even though uh, Ezra was close to winning that fight in, in those terms, he was getting his ass kicked uh, almost from the opening bell, and the fight was never competitive. Marciano later started a video looking back on that rematch with Ezra Charles, and for some reason recounted the tale of the fight while sitting beside the singer Tony Bennett. Tony, being that you're a stand-up singer, why don't we sit down? Okay. Tony, i got to ask you one question. What is it? Your favorite number. Do you have one? Well, yes, it's actually the... Rocky Marciano and Tony Bennett carry on like this for some time before the fight actually starts. But when it did, Marciano completely dominated. 
and completely overpowered the ex-heavyweight champion. I'm not worried about my nose. I'm worried about losing the title. Come on, knock this guy dead with a shot. Forget the blood. Let's get this guy. Marciano knocked out Ez in the eighth round, and that would be the Cincinnati Cobra's last shot at the heavyweight title. Believe me, it took some doing. This guy came with a steel chin. Fighters always have and always will have a tough time leaving the ring for good. The 41-year-old former UFC heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier compared fighting to a drug. He said, quote, Knowing when to walk away is a tough concept for those who scored knockouts against the greatest fighters of all time. You lose the grind, the tight schedule, the entourage, and the thrill of competing in front of thousands. According to William Detloff, as his wife Gladys encouraged him to stop. But she recognized there was a point when Ezard had to stop because he was just getting beat up and there was no good gun to come out of it. Ezard's career went out with a wisp instead of a bang. Ezard started losing to the young contenders he was supposed to test, then to journeymen. I can't imagine that. Uh, maybe I don't think it's ever happened where a fighter just retired because his wife made him. Because fighters can't do anything else. What else are they going to do? If you spend your entire adult life and part of your childhood, really, let's face it, learning a craft, and then you're 30 or 32 or 35, and then somebody just says you can't do it anymore, well, you don't know anything else. That's all you've ever done. As fought whoever he could, the now 84-year-old George Logan is the only guy alive who faced Ezard in the ring. Logan knocked Ezard out when he was 22 years old in Boise, Idaho. Facing Ezard Charles, yes, I was rather kind of concerned because he was the uh, next champion at the time, but he was only, and now it's coming up and he is kind of going down, and uh, that's about it. Uh, uh, anything particular about the fight, I don't remember. Ezra descended from Yankee Stadium back to Cincinnati's Music Hall, finally to a high school basketball gym in Lincoln Heights. A few Cincinnatians watched their champ outbox a 250-pound police officer from a nearby suburb. He fell, and Cincinnati left him on the bottom, so he had to leave. And the people who he gave to would, would walk across the street when they saw him coming and not go out so they wouldn't see him. That's Ezra Charles II. Ezard was forced to give up all that he ever knew and start from scratch. The money was gone, and Gladys kept the family together. We were in Cincinnati. My dad, in 59, if he stopped by, he would be in Canada someplace trying to get some money, and we were there on our own. We were raking the leaves one fall, and we would set the leaves. You know, he used to burn the leaves, right? And we were out there roasting hot dogs on the fire. And I was like 22 years old. I was sitting in my mom's eating a bowl of cereal came by her house, you know, I was eating some cereal she had there, and I told her about that day when we were out there roasting hot dogs on the fire. She said because the gas was off. See, I didn't even know that. This is the kind of mother I'm talking. She didn't, she didn't bring us that, that father, your damn father. You know, she, she wasn't like that. She was just peaceful and, and taking care of us. I thought we were having fun. and the heavyweight champ took jobs wherever he could. His advantage as a former champ was being allowed to work at a Dodge dealership. Then he struggled a little bit. He worked at uh, Esserman and Dodge. He was one of the first African-American Dodge salesmen that Dodge had in the Midwest. There were no African-American seller Dodge. He was one of the good boys. They had, they had on their ties, the Dodge boy. The greatest light heavyweight of all time then worked at the DMV, 
as was a lenient judge of the driving test. Then he went to the license place, the DMV in Illinois, and he was helping people get their driver's license. He'd come home with $50 bills in his pocket. Those were guys giving him tips because he would help him pass the test. He made good money as a fighter, but he shared it casually, made investments with his heart, paid high taxes, and lived in the moment. And while he was quiet, he was never a pushover. Because he came from Lawrenceville, Georgia, during the times of segregation. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to always get on the bus with him, and I would run to the back of the bus. And he would say, come on, sit up here. He was, he wanted to sit up front. Because, see, he remembered a time when he wasn't allowed to sit on the front of a bus. So, oh. you know, he, he knew those things. And he, he knew what Dr. King was trying to do, to make it give equal rights to everybody. And when the Charles family lived in Chicago, one of the most famous boxers to ever step foot in the ring, one of the most prominent critics of the Vietnam War going on at that time, was a regular visitor at the apartment. I never knew that your, your father had a, a relationship with Muhammad Ali. Oh yeah, he was a neighbor of ours, and he would come by all the time. It was a December day, and it was real cold, and I was like 15. And I was taking his coat to hang it up there in the front living room closet. He said, look at it. I said, yeah. He said, it's so cold, I saw Superman catching a cab. You know, stuff like that. It was always great. The most striking difference between Ali and Charles was their relationship with the U.S. military, as served in World War II. He was drafted, and he stood forward. He stood forward, he got in, he was in the Army until the duration. So that's where it was during World War II. You were in for the duration. You didn't have 13 months in combat like with Vietnam. You were in for the duration. And he stepped forward because that's what people did in the country. You know what I'm saying? You had very few people who evaded the draft, especially during World War II after the sneak attack by the Japanese emperor, you know, on our, our troops at Pearl Harbor. Ali later said about the Vietnam War, quote, my conscience won't let me shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for the big powerful America and shoot them for what? They never called me the N-word. They never lynched me. They never put no dogs on me. They didn't rob me of my nationality, rape and kill my mother and father. Shoot them for what? How can I shoot them, poor people? Just take me to jail. But Ali and Charles had immense respect for each other, despite their political differences. And when Ali met up with Charles, he was there to learn, too. He asked my father, this was in 64, if he would teach him the twister punch so he could bring cuts on a person quickly. You know, there's a twist to your jab that makes it, when you when it, when it hits the person's face, it makes the skin cut and get the cut out quicker. While Charles talked boxing with Muhammad Ali, he wasn't quick to relive the glory days or talk about past fights. Yeah, he would talk about, he said, yeah, I fought him, and yeah, he was a tough guy, but I got him, you know, he would talk like that. But he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't really get into all the people he knocked out. My dad, he didn't, that, later on, that, that stuff really didn't mean that much. It was me and my sisters and my mom that got to be more important to him. He lived quietly with his family. He worked and maintained a middle-class lifestyle. He didn't ask for anything. But Chicago's mayor, Richard Daly, let him take a test to become a social worker. He got that job, and he was so proud because he said they was down there taking a test with college guys when they hired him. And I know Mayor Daly didn't just put him on there. He, he passed that test. And he was so proud of himself, you know, that he passed the test. We you know college guys. You know, he had a high school diploma. That's all. 
Many pro boxers, especially from that era, end up with less dignified ends. Some former champs die broke, making pennies on the glory of their past fame. Jack Johnson worked in a flea circus in New York's Times Square. Joe Lewis worked as a greeter at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. He relived the time he knocked out Max Schmeling over and over again to blackjack tables. The Brown Bomber assuaged high rollers who lost thousands to the house. Ezard had a harder time getting around. His ALS became noticeable, and Gladys jumped in to help him. And they had no handicap stuff or nothing. Stand handicap ramp or anything. He wasn't even in a wheelchair. He was walking, but he had a hold on her arm to walk, and she would hold him up. And when Ez lost control of his motor functions, when he got real bad, where his ALS was really affecting him, she used to take him to the toilet. I would do it sometimes, but my mom did more than anybody. Bathing shaving, I mean everything, she did everything. While Ezard's body failed, he managed to stay happy by focusing on the positive things, like his family. Ezard Charles II, the minister Ezard Charles, also says that his father grew closer with his faith towards the end. Because he could so, see what all that was about, there's nothing, you know? It's just like I know now, this is temporary, you know what I mean? This is not going to be forever. Ezra Charles inspired his son to carry himself with restraint, treat people with respect, and that may have saved his life when Ezra Charles II worked as a jail guard. Then I went to the Cook County Jail. I was a sheriff down there at the jail, deputy sheriff. So, I mean, it's okay. I did it. And, then, you know, I didn't have no problem. I would see guys. We were at barbecue, and I heard, hey, officer Charles. I turned around at some of those inmates. They saw me before I saw them. You see what I'm saying? So had I been an ASS... Who knows what would have happened to me? These are gangbangers, you know what I'm saying? I treated guys right. I gave them what they had coming, and I wasn't, you know, trying to abuse anybody. I went with a lieutenant, McDonald. I remember this. The West Segregation at the prison. And this Spanish Latin king, he was in there throwing stuff. And, you know, we he came in and sprayed him with, with the mace. And we came in. I restrained him. McDonald was hitting him over here with a, with a flashlight, a plastic flashlight. You know, he was doing And I came back the next day, and one of the guys said, yeah, Charles, you was beating up my guy. And he said, Charles wasn't beating on me. See, he knew who was doing that. It's a gangbanger, right? And he's like the guys I saw at the park, we were barbecuing. Officer Charles, I'm sorry, I said, hey, what's that? They saw me before I saw them. So had I been an ASS, who knows what would have happened to me, right? They might have shot me. Today, Ezra Charles has a mural, a street named after him, and will soon have a statue in Laurel Park. To me, he's the enduring symbol of mental fortitude and is the paternal spirit of Cincinnati, Ohio. Total Fighter is written, produced, hosted by me. My name is Ricky Mulvey. A big thank you to everyone who lent me their time, who allowed me to interview them, uh, in particular Ezra Charles II for this episode. I don't believe he's done a podcast besides this one. Also a big thank you to William Detloff. If you're interested in learning more about Ezra Charles, I highly recommend his book, Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. Also thank you to Hamad Youssef, Buddy LaRosa, Daryl P-Man Jones, Bud Bukzowski, and Kevin Grace. Thank you, Carolyn Eyre, for always being the second set of ears on this series. And if you're interested in helping the statue of Ezra Charles uh, get made in Laurel Park, you can go to ezracharles.org. 
you can find the fundraising campaign there. Season 2 will be out in a couple of months. I am looking for ideas on uh, people who would be a good representation of the Total Fighter. They could be a boxer, they could be someone else. Leave a 5 star review, uh, give your thoughts in the comments, I will certainly look at them. And I know you hear this in every podcast you listen to, but please rate this show if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show, and, uh, and as I'm doing this show uh, by myself, it uh, helps me tremendously, and I, I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in Season 2. Bye.